I'd like to thank you for having me uh, come and present God's Word to you this morning. Um, we just finished singing, I want to see you. And the way that we see God is through His Word, through the reading and the preaching of His Word. That's how we see Him, by faith and not by sight. Uh, and one day He will bust that sky open and we will see Him. Amen. Miss <clears throat> uh, Angela called me or contacted me earlier this week and asked me if I would, a short notice, but could you bring a message? And I was more than happy to, and it was funny because I was literally just thinking about a conversation we had been having at Bible study on Monday nights. If y'all are not coming to Bible study on Monday nights at 6 o'clock, come. It's, it's a fun time. We read the scriptures together, and we iron sharpens iron. That's the way it works. We, we um, bring up our what we see in the scriptures, and we ask God to open our hearts to understand it better. And that's the way that we grow is through uh, fellowship. Through fellowship in his word and so if you hadn't been here please come and be a part of that but when she we had had a discussion at the end of the bible study last week and we were talking about what i must do to go to heaven or what must i do to have eternal life and so i, I want to start by asking you a question and then we're going to get immediately into the text do you know what the difference is in a true relationship with jesus christ through true, a through, through a true Christian relationship with Jesus Christ and every religion in the world, every ism that is out there, whether it be Mohammedism or Muslim, Hinduism, Judaism, Catholicism, all of these isms. Do you know there is actually one difference in all of the world religions and a true relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know there's one difference? The one difference in all of the world religions and a relationship with Jesus Christ hinges on this. All of the religions in the world have something that you have to do in order to receive eternal life. A true relationship with Jesus Christ is not based on what you do. It's based on what Christ has done for you. That's the one difference. The one difference in all of the religions in the world and a relationship with Jesus Christ is all of the religions in the world say this is what you do to get to heaven, to nirvana, to, to, to the holy, eternal relationship with God. This is what you do. And Jesus said, it is finished. When Jesus died on the cross, when he was buried in the grave and three days later rose again, that was the proof that we needed to know that he had paid it all. It is finished. Jesus did not say it's now up to you. And that is the distinction or the difference in all of the world religions and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now today we're going to get into this distinctions between the law... And the gospel. The law says do. Jesus says it's done. And each and every one of us in this room, in our natural fallen state as Adam's children, all want to hold on to something that we are doing in order to have that relationship with Jesus Christ. When the truth of the matter is, it's what Jesus has done and what he is doing for you now that secures your eternal 
salvation. And anytime we begin to lean on what we are doing, deep down inside of all of our hearts, we know that we've not done enough. For every one good thing we've done, we can think of one bad thing that we have done. For every sin of omission, which means we didn't do something, every time we didn't stop on the side of the road and help somebody with a flat tire, every time we forgot to say our prayers, every time we skipped church, every time we did something, every time we had a a mean thought in our head or a, a lustful thought in our head, that is something that God is going to hold us accountable for. So we can think about all of the good things that we have done, and we're supposed to do good things, and we're going to learn that today. But if I am depending on anything that I have done to get me to heaven, I will never be assured of my salvation. We have to completely lean on Jesus. So, with that said, let's get into the text today because we're going to, have, we're going to meet a rich young ruler who asks the same question. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Mark. We're going to look in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Now before we read the text, let's go ahead and open up in prayer and ask God to bless our time together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, it is a privilege and a joy to come before you to study, to hear your word, and to be conformed to the image of your Son through that word. And it is only through Him that we are able to approach We thank you, Jesus, for coming and dying on that cross to save us. We thank you, Father and Son, for sending your Holy Spirit to convince us of that truth and to to confirm us as your children. So, Lord, you know every man and woman in this room. You know the, the frailty and the faults of this pastor. You know each and every one of us, and you know what we need to hear this morning. My prayer is that you will use your word to open our hearts so that we can see your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you'll notice at the beginning of the story, in some of our, the uninspired uh, title at the beginning of the paragraph is the rich young ruler. And that's not in the Bible, but he is rich and he is young and he is a ruler. And so um, he already has three strikes against him. He's rich, right? So he can buy anything he wants. He's young. That means he's ignorant and don't know anything. And he's a ruler. That means that he's the boss and everybody else has to listen to him. But let's look at this text and, and see the love of Jesus at work in the heart of this man. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And the man said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to them, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left their house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in this present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. So as we look at this text, there are so many important things that we see in it. And I want to try in the next few minutes to bring some of those things out to you. First of all, we want to recognize that this young man comes to the right source. Amen. The answers are found in Jesus. And this man comes to him and he asks him a very important question. A question that all of the world religions is trying to answer. A question that each and every human being who was created in the image of God and who fell in Adam has deep down inside of his heart. What happens after I die? Where do I go? Am I going to be rewarded or am I going to be punished? What must I do... To inherit eternal life. It's a very important question. It is the question until we get it answered. And so I want you to look at the problem with the question. First of all, we want to see the problem with the question. The problem with the question is, it's a trick question. The man is coming to Jesus in all sincerity. Wanting to know what must I do to inherit eternal life. And eternal life is an inheritance. All through the Bible we read about inheritance. On our Bible study we're talking about Jacob getting the inheritance from his father, right? And all through the Scriptures we see the term inheritance used as a way to help us to understand the indescribable, unseen beauty of what eternal life is going to bring. But you see, ladies and gentlemen... Brothers and sisters, an inheritance is a gift. And to receive an inheritance, you don't do something. Someone else does. If any of y'all knows out there in the yard, I'm driving a 2004 Mercury Grand Marquis. Well, I can tell you that all of my life, that is the last car that I would have ever went and picked off of a, a, a car lot. I always wanted an F-150 with leather seats, uh, all the trimmings. I wanted a Thunderbird or a Mustang. I wanted a nice car. I wanted something to show everybody who I was. The reality is is that for the first 30 years of my adult life, I lived in poverty and debt to car payments. But about 12 years ago, my grandfather died. And at the funeral home, my dad and my uncle came up to me and put the title of that car and the keys in my hand and said... Your grandfather loved you, and he wanted you to have a car of your own. You see, my granddad knew that I couldn't pay my payments. My granddad knew that I was financially irresponsible. My grandfather knew a lot of things about me that I didn't even know he understood about me. But he's my grandfather. And my grandfather did not give me that car 
because I deserved it or I earned it. As a matter of fact, I, I carried my grandfather's name into many places that I had no business being. He gave it to me because he loved me. He gave it to me because he knew that I needed it. He gave it to me because he was blood. Because he was family. And he cared about me. See? And that's the same way God's gift of eternal life works. God loves us so much that He sent His Son and had Him die on a cross and take the death that we deserve so that we can have a life that we can never earn. And ladies and gentlemen, this rich young man comes up to Jesus and said, Tell me what i got to do. Now, if you will notice, we recognize that an inheritance is a gift. Our passage that we read earlier says, It is for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of yourself, lest any man should boast. Yes. Right? Well, watch what it said. It said salvation is a by grace through faith, and it is a gift of God. Salvation is by grace, it is through faith, it is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Well, that it is a gift from God is not just talking about salvation. It's talking about grace. Grace is a gift from God. We do not deserve it. He gives it to us. It's talking about faith. Did you know that if Jesus would have never said, Lazarus, come forth, that he would have stayed in that tomb? It was God's will for him to come to life. And Jesus spoke his Father's will into existence. He came out of that grave. And that's what God did for you. If you are truly a born-again, blood-bought child of God, He's the one that gives you the, the grace of His faith and His salvation. It's a gift from God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And you see, if I'm depending on anything that I do to get me to heaven, one day when I get to heaven, I'm going to be able to boast. I was born and raised as an as a independent fundamental Baptist. I've seen many of people in front of this altar you know, with tissue crying and giving their heart to Jesus. Yes. Well, the reality is, you giving your heart to Jesus doesn't get you to heaven. It may be an expression that you're going there, but it's what Jesus did on the cross. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that's driving you to your knees. It's the regeneration of God at work in your heart that gives you eternal life. Now, before anybody gets too upset, I want you to understand this. It says, for we are His workmanship. That means He's the one that formed us. It's His hand that formed us. Created unto good works. You see, repentance is a gift from God. Faith is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. And why did He give us those things? He gave us those things so that we could then share that with others. Let me read a quote for you from an old Puritan pastor. He said it this way. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, considers not faith as a virtue or a work. So your faith is not a work. But it is an instrument or a hand to apprehend Christ. For faith does not cause, affect, or produce our justification or uh, salvation, but as the beggar's hand receives, 
it receives God's grace. Being holy, writ and given of God. So our faith is simply our hand reaching out and receiving what God gives. Amen. We are His workmanship created in Christ. He gives us the salvation created unto good works. We are then commanded to take that hand and then share that gift with others. You see how that works? All of the things that I do are expressions of my thankfulness to my God and my Savior. I just took some pictures out there on my odometer. I got 200,000 miles the other day. It flipped over to 200,000 miles. I was so happy. But did you know there's not a day that I don't get into that car that I don't think about my grandfather and his love? Not a day. Not a day. So, the first thing we see in this passage is, is that the, the rich young ruler is asking the wrong question. What must I do? He's come to the right place. He's asking the wrong question. But watch what Jesus does. Remember, we have the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel. Do and done. Well, what's Jesus going to do? Well, let's look. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Well, what are we going to use for our standard of good? You see, last night, the Georgia Bulldogs won a football game. That's good. Unless you're from Auburn. You see, what is the standard that we're going to use for good? Well, God has given us that standard. And it's called His law. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Okay, rich young ruler, you want to do something. Here you go. Here's something to do. Look what he says. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, the only person in that conversation that could be called God, uh, good is Jesus because he is God in the flesh. He's the only one that has ever met the standards of God's law. The only one. So he is actually the only person in that whole conversation that could be called good. But he asked the young man, why are you calling me good? No one is good except God alone. So watch what he does. You want to be good? All right, here you go. You want to be good? Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Don't lie. Honor your father and your mother. Now, what did Jesus do? He said, you want to do something? Here's the Ten Commandments. But he actually only gave him... Six. What in the world? Why didn't you give him all ten? Come on, Jesus. You're the one to hand him to Moses on the mountain. Give him all ten. Because Jesus is not bashing this guy over the head. Jesus is going to take his law, his word, and he's going to put it on this man's heart and allow God's word to do what it does. Well, what does it do? Well, you have to understand that when the Bible talks about the law... Right? When it talks about the law, there's actually three different uh, divisions of the law, if you will. One is the moral law. That's the Ten Commandments. And the moral law, the Ten Commandments were written on the heart of Adam before he ever fell. They were literally written on his heart. When he fell away, God wrote it on stone. When he regenerates you and makes you a child of God, he rewrites it on your heart. So at the Mount Sinai, when he was given the law to Moses, he was reestablishing something that they should have known. And the reason that the law becomes offensive to us is because it reminds us of what we lost. It reminds us of what we're not doing. But you have the moral law, 
And then you also have the cultic law or the civil law. What, what are uh, cultic law or laws of worship? What I mean, the word cult, you all know what a cult is. You immediately think of Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. A cult, the word cultus in Latin means worship. So the cultic law are the laws of the worship. It's the Aaronic, if you read the book of Leviticus, and a lot of people don't because they don't understand it, but that is the cultic law. It's telling them how to approach God through sacrifice, through the priesthood, etc., etc. So when the Bible talks about the law, it talks about the moral law, it talks about the cultic law, and it also talks about the civil law. You see, I'm wearing a, a suit today that is mixed fibers. A Jewish man would have, at that time would have not been able to wear something that makes fibers. Because the civil law, uh, he would not have been able to eat shrimp, or crab, or oysters, or bacon. How terrible. You see? He had these laws. If he got caught stealing something from his neighbor, he would have to return him four times what he stole. Those are the civil laws of the nation of Israel. Now, the civil laws and the cultic laws do not apply to you and I. Why? Because Jesus is our sacrifice now. Jesus is the one who wrote upon our heart God's will. His law. It's written in my heart now. But the Ten Commandments are still just as applicable to me and you today as they were to them. That is the standard. Why? Because the law serves a purpose. The first purpose of the law is to mirror to me and you what we are. The law acts as a mirror. The law acts to convict us of our sins and convince us of our need for Christ. We don't like to look in the mirror sometimes, do we? I don't like to listen to these recordings I'm making right now because I don't sound like that. <laughs> Erase that picture because that's not what I look like. We've got all these apps and filters now to filter out the lines off your face. And I thought, why? Because we don't like to face reality. But God's law is a mirror to our soul. And that is the first purpose. The second purpose of the law is to restrain evil. What do I mean when I say the law restrains evil? Well, when you're riding down this road right here, out here, okay, there's a a speed limit of 35 during school hours. And unfortunately, I found out the hard way that if you do over 35, you pay $100 to the city or to Chapel County. You see? So now, after I've paid that $100, when I see that light flashing, guess what I do? I take my foot off the gas. Does that mean that I don't want to speak? No. The law restrains me from being as bad as I could be. See? The law always, we're always looking for the loopholes. Think about the Sabbath law. Right? There's a lot of people this morning at 9.30 watching the Falcons play in London this morning. They should be remembering that today is the Lord. They remember the Sabbath and keeping it holy. You say, wait a minute, we're not under the Sabbath anymore. No. We're under the Lord's day. But it is a Sabbath, it is a rest. It is a time for us to pull ourselves apart and to worship God. But what you'll see on both sides of the Sabbath argument, the people that are at church are saying, well, you should be at church because it's the Sabbath day. You see, they're bragging and they're boasting on what they're doing. The people that are watching the game at home right now are going, uh, that, that Sabbath law, they don't apply to us anymore. We don't have to do that. But you see, they're sitting home on their couch worshiping a God of their own. The law reflects to us our standard before God. So Jesus puts the law in this man's lap and says, You know the commandments. 
But you see, the third purpose of the law is to reveal God. It is a way for us to do see what is pleasing to God. What is pleasing to God, John 14, 15 says, If you love me, and this is in the New Testament, this is Jesus, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You see, obedience is a reflection of our love. If God's love is in me, then I will be obedient. And if I'm being obedient, that doesn't mean I'm looking for loopholes. Amen? And watch. We need to understand what Jesus is doing here. The law comes in two tables. I won't put you on the spot, but the Ten Commandments are what? You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any statues and images or idols. Don't take my name in vain and remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's the first table of the law. The second table of the law is... Uh, honor your parents, do not lie, do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery, and don't covet. Paul said, when I was fine with all nine, I got to covenanting, and then I had a problem. You see, the whole advertisement industry is based on covenanting. I work in a grocery store. We merchandise stuff and put it on the shelf to make you want it when you come to the store. You see it, and you say, mine. What does it mean to covet? It means to desire something that is not yours. My cousin told me a story about a six-year-old son and, and two grand, uh, grandson and two granddaughters the other day. They went to a, a church camp. And when they came out, the two little girls had been in one class. They got a, a sucker. The little boy didn't get no sucker. He got in the car and pitched a fit with his daddy. And he said, Dad. And, and he said, wait a minute, son. Didn't you just take a class on the Ten Commandments? He said, yeah. He said, "Well, don't you know that coveting, wanting what somebody else has got, wanting somebody else's stuff, is wrong?" And the little boy replied, "His daddy's six years old now." He said, "Yeah, but I don't want their sucker. I want mine." You see, even at six years old, we look for loopholes to please ourselves. So Jesus takes these two tables, one having to love about loving God and one about loving neighbor and he drops one in his lap because that is the whole law to love the Lord your God with all your heart your mind your soul and to love your neighbor as you love yourself you see so the whole law is love God love neighbor and Jesus has made it very simple for us he put it on two tablets the first four have to do with loving God and the second two have to love do with loving man your neighbor in another passage in Luke chapter 10, the guy says, well, who is my neighbor? This same guy, is one, he actually asked the same thing this guy asked. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him and said, love your neighbor. And the man says, well, who's my neighbor? Seeking to justify himself. Yes. You see? Because we even want to determine who our neighbor is. But your neighbor is whoever God puts in your path in life. Amen. Anybody that God places in your path is your neighbor. They're, they're, they're your brethren in Adam, if you will. And we are, are commanded to love them. So, Jesus takes these commandments. He lays it in the guy's lap and he says, Okay, you know the commandments. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't uh, lie and honor your father and your mother. And listen to what the man says. He said to Jesus, Teacher, I've done all of these things since my youth. What did he say? Jesus said, no one is good but God. Here's the commandments to show you what good looks like. 
And what does the guy say? I'm good. Let's take a look at what Paul says about how good we are. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Romans. We're going to look at Romans uh, chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 10 through uh, 18. Um, or through 20. Now, I'm going to read this kind of fast because I'm pressed for time. But I want you to listen. This is what Paul says about humanity. There are none righteous, not one. That includes all of us in this room. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. They've all turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There's no, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that the, every mouth, every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So if I'm a person who is depending on what I do to get me to heaven, I'm depending on the law, and all of this applies to me. If I am in Christ, Christ has done all of the law commanded for me. He has not only taken away all of the times that I have fallen short of that law, but He has imputed me with His goodness. He's given me His righteousness. And I'm no longer depending on the law for my righteousness. I'm depending on Christ Jesus. You see? But when we read those passages, there's none righteous, no, not even one. You can take that passage to anywhere in the world and read it, and they'll say, you know what, that sounds like my local news. That sounds like what I see on social media. That sounds like what I see at my job place. Cursing, bitterness, none doing good, everyone seeking their own desire. That sounds like the world. But Paul is quoting the law in Moses. Paul, right, all of that right there in the NASB, it's in all capital letters, to show you he's pulling all of these texts from the law. Because what does the law do? It mirrors to us what God thinks of us. And until, through God's grace, you and I are willing to hold that mirror up and see that I fall short of God's glory and righteousness, then I'm going to continue to depend on me. And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to depend on Christ alone. Amen? Alright, so, Jesus takes these laws and He throws the second table at Him. Love your neighbor. Don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery. And what did a man say? Check, check, check. Done it, done it, done it, done it. I'm good. And then Jesus says this to him. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give all of your possessions to the poor. You will have riches in heaven. And come follow me. Let go of what you are holding on to and receive what I am offering you. Let go of the things of this world and receive the gift of eternal life. You see, Jesus knew this young man's heart. And He knew this man, although in His mind, He had convinced Himself that He had always obeyed His parents. Which we know no kid has ever done. (laughs) He never lied, which is a lie. 
He'd broken all of those laws, and Jesus knew that. But He didn't bash Him over the head and say, You're a filthy sinner. He allowed God's Word to convict this man's heart. Or He presented God's Word as an opportunity to convict the man's heart. Because what He did is He took the second table of the law, and He said, Rich young ruler, you have another God before me. It's called your possessions. Yes. You are an idolater. What letter does idolatry start with? That's not by coincidence. We are our little gods. And it's about me. And when God saves you and makes you a part of his family, and you begin to mature and grow in the faith, you start realizing it's about him and others. If God's law is truly at work in our hearts, it will convict us. And what did the man do? He hung his head and he walked away because he had much stuff. Yes. Now, I will tell you this. <clears throat> we're we're going to run out of time today, so we won't be able to get through everything. But Jesus is saying, come follow me, sell everything that you had. And then he's going to turn around and teach the crowd uh, from the, the living lesson. The man hangs his head and walks away, sorry, because he had much stuff. You see, this man was not willing to let go of what he did in order to receive what God has done. Now, there's one passage there he's going to say, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, there's a lot of churches nowadays, rich churches, by the way, that will tell you, well, that's just a metaphor for you getting down on your knees and crawling through the needle of the gate of the city. No. Jesus is speaking an hyperbole, and if any of you in here are fishermen and you've ever tried to put a fishing line through a fishing hook, you know how hard it is to get that little piece of line through there. What Jesus is saying is that I have an eagle that's way smaller than a fish hook for you ladies that so you know this, but you've got to get a magnifying glass now to get the string through there. But the reality is a camel don't fit. And the reason is because that man was holding on to his riches, he couldn't fit through the narrow gate. And if you want to get in a man's business, get in his pocketbook. Jesus, all through the Bible, uses examples of money to get to people. Why? Because it's something we understand. You see, I'm way quick to make sure that I get my Georgia Power bill paid. Because I want lights and I want cable and I want to be able to watch the game tonight. I want air conditioning. You see, we know that from the hurricanes, right? We want air conditioning. We'll pay those bills to make sure that we get some creaturely comfort. But not only is this talking about money, it's talking about wealth. It's talking about the things that God has given you. Your good looks. Your health. The wisdom and the knowledge that you have in your mind. God's the one to give you your mind. Any wisdom knowledge we have, any good health that we have, any money that we do have in the bank, any job that we have, any healthy kids, anything that you have is your wealth. Yes. These are things that God has blessed you with. They're physical things that are, are blessings and you're to use them for the glory of the kingdom of God. Amen. Yes. But our problem in our fallen nature as sons of Adam is we hold on to those things for who? Ourselves. Why do we brag about our kids? Because they remind us of us. And nothing bad's ever come out of me. You see? 
Why do we brag about our jobs? Because I make more than he does. Y'all remember the Pharisee? Thank God you didn't make me like him. And the reality is the law smashes all of that. And says, stop thinking about yourself. Stop trusting in what you do. What you have done. I, I, I took care of a, a great aunt and a grandfather before they died for years and years. And one of the things that you'll notice about folks when they get in, in the last stage of their life is they always talk about the same stuff over and over again. It's always the stuff that they did. Whether you were the captain of the football team and scored a bunch of touchdowns and won the state championship or whatever it might be. As we die, physically, as we physically die, that physical man wants to hold on to what he has done and who he is. Amen. Yes. If you don't believe that, how aggravating does it get that you have to go get prescription glasses because your eyesight is failing? How aggravating is it when you get out of bed you hurt in the morning because of what you did in the yards the day before? How aggravating is it to see the little kids running around with more energy than should be allowed and you barely have enough energy to make dinner? But the reality is, is that we want to hold on to ourselves. And God's law says, no, it's not about you. It's about me and it's about others. Amen. Yes. And until we're willing to let go of that and receive what God has given us, we will never know eternal life. Yes. Now, even a child of God is guilty of this, guys, ladies. Even as getting the inheritance, we sometimes love to take advantage of the grace that God has given us, don't we? I can't tell you how many times I've skipped getting new tires put on that car that my grandfather gave me. Or how many times I've let it go over to 3,000 miles recommended for an oil change, right? Or how bad it probably needs a wash job right now. See? Why? Because... We get comfortable. We get we get lazy. We get rebellious. That's the word. And God's law is there to drive that out of us. God's law is there to show us who we are. And that's what he does with his man. So I, I got to wind down. I, I do want you to see a couple of the lessons that we learn from that, this. Look in verse 22. Verse 22 of that uh, Mark passage. Jesus said, said, but at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he is one who owned much property. One of the things we learn in that passage is our wealth, our riches, the things that God has given to us can actually be the very thing hindering us from receiving his gifts, his gifts of eternity. The physical things that we own and possess in this life, the material riches that we have, can actually be the very thing that keeps us from enjoying the eternal riches of the kingdom of God. Number two, look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard is it? There's a difficulty in entering the kingdom of God. Why? Because we have to be willing to accept that it's not our things that get us there. It's God. We have to be willing to stop depending on self and depend on God. The law reminds us of that and beats us over and over again. And one of the things about the law, the book of Hebrews says the law is imperfect. And you go, wait a minute now, preacher. 
The law is the very express will of God. Yeah, you're right. The reason the writer of Hebrews, I think it's Paul, said that the law is imperfect is because we're not able to keep it. The imperfections are not in the law itself. The imperfections are in the fact that we can't live up to it. Yes. See? But there is a difficulty in entering the kingdom. Why? Because we have to recognize it's not about us and it's about Him. And that goes contrary to the very nature of our fallenness in Adam. We want to depend upon ourselves. Number and 25, I've already spoke to you about the fact that Jesus talked about the camel going through an eye of a needle. That's hyperbole. He's using a big uh, image to help us to understand how silly it is to think that I can enter into the kingdom of God holding on to I. Yes. Alright? So, in verse 26, look at verse 26. They uh, were even more so. I said, then who can be saved? See, at that time and in that world, material blessings, this rich young ruler would have been somebody looked on by the rest of society as someone who was blessed of God. They thought that people that had money in the bank and a house and a, and a four-car garage and a, a model wife, that, oh, this is somebody who is blessed of God. God is pouring His blessings on them. They would have said, if anybody in this room is going to heaven, it's him. Because he wears the right clothes, he talks the right talk, and he's done everything that it was required of him. But the reality is, God's children recognize that we are unworthy. God's children recognize that we need something more than ourselves. So, in verse 27, look at verse 27. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. There's not one person in this room that it is not possible for God to save. But who is it that saves them? God. God is the one who saves. He is our Savior. We are not. So, salvation is God's work, and if we are saved... Verse 27, we need to realize that salvation is a, a work of God. But we also need to recognize that if God has worked in us, those works are going to come out of us. Verse 27 through 31, the true child of God is not so much fixated. This is so important, guys. Please, if you hear not much of what else I said today, please hear this. The true child of God is not so much fixated on what they get, but what they now have to give because of Jesus. I have a mansion just over a hilltop. One of my favorite songs as a kid. My granddad and my grandma, my mom would play it on the piano and everybody after dinner would sit around and sing it. There's a truth in that. He's going to prepare a place for us. And the streets are going to be gold, and or the streets are going to be—it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be indescribable. Eyes have not seen, ears not heard the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. But how much of that song is about? Look what I did. The child of God is not fixated on what He gets, but on Christ who gave it to Him. Yes. Amen. All right, a couple more things. We'll, be, we'll wrap up. Um, verse 31, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Yes. The kingdom of God doesn't work in the same way that the kingdom of this world works. It, 
the concepts and the principles are completely flipped on their head. Because the kingdom of God is about God, the kingdom of man is about man. And we have so many ideas in our head of how this world should work. And we want justice and we want fairness and we want blessings and we want all of these things. And God says, it's not about the things of this world. There's there's one passage in there. Look, Look what he says in verse 30. But they will receive a hundred times now in this present life houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecution. We forget about that, don't we? We forget that the children of God suffer. You see, Jesus came and presented the kingdom to the world and the world didn't accept it. Why? Because it didn't look like Him. He came, they were looking for a conqueror and He came and died on the cross. They were looking for an empire. And he was showing them a grave. Yes. The kingdom of God doesn't work the way our world works. And many of the things that we think are very important in this life are least important in the kingdom. And many of the things that we're holding on to the Titus are the very things that we need to let go of. So what does God do? He gives us law to show us what to let go of. Right? We think that our health is so important. So what does God do? Well, over 60, 70, 80 years, He takes it away from you. Have you ever noticed that folks on their deathbed are, are, are not so much concerned about a whole lot of things? God takes away, as we grow and as we mature, God begins to take away all of these things that we think are important to us so that we can focus on what's really important. And we don't like it. We do not like to be reminded that we're getting old. We do not like to be reminded. If you, we don't like to be reminded that money can't buy you happiness. Yes. We don't like to be reminded of things. We don't like to be reminded of maybe what you're doing is not the most important thing. And God has given us His Word as a way to show us both His law and His gospel. Let me apply these things and then we'll wrap up with prayer. Number one. These are some points of application for us today. Number one, the Jews. Now, when I say the Jews, I'm not talking about the entire nation. I'm talking about the Jews in the book of John. These are the people that were contrary to Jesus. In the book of John, when you read the book of John, every time you hear the word the Jews, it's always in a negative connotation. Why? Because these are the people that rejected their Messiah. But look, the Jews failed to submit in faith to God's righteousness when He arrived. Because they were seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. The righteousness of Christ is available to anyone who will receive Him and believe Him. So the reason that they rejected Him was because they had their own righteousness. They did not need His. They were depending on what they were doing instead of what He was offering. And we, as the Christian church, can fall into that same trap just as quick as now. If you don't believe me, not even the Christian church, the world religions around us are all bound in that trap right now. They are all depending on something that they have done. And believe me, I know plenty of good independent fundamental Baptists that believe that getting done in that water is going to get you to heaven. I know plenty of Southern Baptists who think because you came down an island and gave your heart to Jesus, you're going to heaven. 
Now those are good things. And they're commanded of God to repent and to be baptized. Those are commandments from God. They're good things. But if I'm holding on to those things as what's getting me to heaven, I'm dependent on myself and not God. So we can fall into the same traps that we read in in the passage of Scripture. We're very susceptible to them because we're kids of Adam too. Now, proper obedience. Our works and our sacrifices are defined by the law and they are descriptive of the actions of an heir of the kingdom of God. They are not the prescription to get to heaven. They are the description of someone who is going there. The law is not a prescription. Take two of these and call me in the morning. It's not a prescription. It's not something given to you so that you can do it and earn. They are a description of someone who has them written on their heart. And it pours out in their life. Please think about that image again. Faith is the hand that receives the gift of God. And love is the hand that then shares it with others. Last of all, the hand that receives His grace desires to give that back to God and others. We serve not to get, but to give. Amen. Amen. Father, thank You for this time that You've given us together today. Thank You for this chance to study Your Word, Your truth. I pray for every man and woman in this room, myself included. If there be something in my life, Lord, if there be something in our life that we're holding on to that is is hindering us from walking closer to You, please use Your Word and Your Holy Spirit to convict us of those things. Give us to strengthen the willingness to let go of those things and to embrace Your kingdom and to walk with You forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.